Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Cedric Simmons, who is a doctorate fellow or somebody who's working on his dissertation, and he's also an instructor. His investigations or his dissertation is on class and race and diversity training, and he brings a lot of knowledge into the ways in which diversity training is not only not working at what it's intended to do, it's actually cementing certain power structures that it's nominally trying to dismantle or upset. His is a Marxist slash socialist lens, and I actually really appreciate it. I actually. And I rather appreciated gaining his insight or his perspective into these matters. It really does shed a lot of light onto my research into the Evergreen State College, because we do talk not only about the corporate environment, but the ways in which diversity, equity, and inclusion training and offices are kind of meddling with or affecting, let's just say, the collegiate and the educational environment. This is a very educational conversation for me as somebody who's been, you know, looking at this stuff worrisomely for several years now, but now I have a different form of analysis and I'm really excited to introduce you to Cedric Simmons. How far away from your dissertation being dissertated are you? <laughs> the, uh, probably um, if all else goes uh the way that i plan it should be done by this time next year oh nice okay and is that like a two or three year kind of thing or how long oh this is my sixth year in grad school whoa wait yeah (laughs) okay wow i went for my master's um so i right after undergrad i got into a phd program at boston college and um, and so I got my master's and my PhD uh, while in graduate school. Okay, yeah. Uh, combined, yep. And is uh, is it breaking you, or are you bigger than <laughs> it? <laughs> I hear the doctorate can crack it's people. It's breaking me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it broke me, and I think over the, since I've uh, – I, I moved to Rochester, back home to Rochester, New York last year um, to start um, doing my data collection – uh, in a cheaper area, because uh, Boston's so much more expensive. And so I think over the last year, even though the world has gone to shit, uh, um, I think... What makes you I've, say that? <laughs> uh, COVID, uh, really. Uh, yeah. My dad got COVID, and so it oh, really... Oh, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, he's he's fine now, but okay. it was... It was um, it was rough. He was on life support. It was oh, it was a mess. Um, but um, and so once that happened, just a series of unfortunate events have happened since. But the good thing is that I've been able to be home and be close to family when they needed me most. So yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. And what's your dissertation called, or was it on? Uh, so right now, the tentative title is um, is uh, the diversity management bargain. Uh, race, class, um, and diversity or equity work in higher education. Yeah, which is a pretty hot topic. Yeah, <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been ramping up for several years. I've been following it, but um, right now Definitely. it's kind of breached uh, 
full consciousness, it seems like. Yes. And, and books like White Fragility sort of help to usher that in um, mm-hmm. or to bring that to the fore. And obviously the protests. You know? Yeah. 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 It's a good time to, for, how are, to talk about it. What's your like methodology on how you're studying that? Like what's your your framework of, of yeah. pursuing so, that? Um, so I, I conducted interviews with uh, 30 diversity managers from a variety of different campuses in um, New York State and Massachusetts. And, um, and I think like the best way to make sense of my framework is I'm just a unapologetic, uh, anti-essentialist. Okay. And so I'm coming in, um, with a sort of anti-essentialist lens and, uh, and also to bring in a class analysis of diversity management, cause that's, what's missing. That's uh that's a sustained critique of, uh, the equity inclusion and diversity, uh, I guess I don't know what you would call it. Is it like the movement or the ideology or? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's it's probably uh, I, I've called it a regime. The diversity regime right. is one term that I've liked. Yeah, <laughs> I can dig regime. Could you <laughs> define for myself and the viewer or the listener? What, what do you mean by anti-essentialist? And mm-hmm. yeah. so w- when I say anti-essentialist, I mean, um, I am someone who. Um, rejects or, or begins with the premise that any notions that categories, these descriptive categories like race, gender, um, uh, et cetera, um, that uh, I reject the notion that these categories um, are, uh, what's the word, um, that they are commensurate with nature. So when people, for example, um, uh, use terms like race or racial differences, um, what they typically um, talk about is like there are different types of human beings and the different racial categories that we have actually denote some natural distinctions. And um, I believe that that is uh, a fiction mm-hmm. and reject any attempts to to reaffirm the notion that racial differences are um, are natural. OK, there seems to be a certain rhetoric within anti-racist regime or the anti-racist regime that they start by rejecting the natural reality of race. They say it's a social construct, but then they go on and reaffine it, re- yep. reify it until it becomes like this, you know, all-consuming category. Yeah, the dodge the, or the, 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 um, the way that race has been um, re re. Reaffirmed as a natural uh, category or natural distinction is through the language of culture, and so they would say we're not talking about um, we're not talking about natural differences, but we're talking about cultural uh, distinctions. Mm -hmm. And for folks who um, have uh, um, um, studied the ways in which race has been deployed since um, probably since the 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 thirties. Um, it has been usually tied to some notion that like there are different types of people, not by virtue of nature, but they have different norms, they have different values, and that makes them fundamentally different from other people. Mm-hmm. And so even if they're not saying it's natural, they, they are saying that it does denote something essential about um, um, groups of people. Yeah, um, like the, the concept of whiteness or blackness being tools. Of yeah, that. when people use the language of whiteness to explain um, some type of outcomes – um, what that denotes is that there's something essential. Um, there's something um, inherent about people that we categorize as white. Um, um, that that essential trait 
is what is causing whatever outcomes that they're talking about. And that I think that if you are, um, well, one, I usually don't know what they mean by whiteness because <laughs> it just it ends up becoming a term that is all encompassing for a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure. It's, I think it's doing too much work in general. Mm-hmm. But even putting aside that fact, um, it usually is, uh, what's the word? Um, I, white supremacists tend to agree with the notion that there is an inherent whiteness yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, that, that produces an outcome. And that's something that we should embrace. And so what, what caused you to be anti-essentialist in your thinking? Did you see like the outcomes of that way of thinking or did you find it distasteful like intuitively before you kind of uh, decided to out and out reject it as a framework? It was not um, – it wasn't intuitive or it wasn't – how do I say this? It wasn't uh, – it's not like early on I was like, I'm going to be an anti-essentialist or what yeah, have you. Yeah. Um, but it was more so um, seeing – how um, essentialist notions of race play out um, um, in practice, especially uh, on, I mean, I've, from my, for the last 10 years, I've been on college campuses. And so seeing how sometimes um, essentialist notions of race and gender, um, seeing how that plays out in a way that actually um, is just not effective at actually addressing the problems um, that I agree that exists. Like I believe racism exists, but I fundamentally believe that embracing race as a as a category is not the way to address racism. So it's mm-hmm. more of like a I've seen how uh, folks organize and um and I've seen how folks uh, uh, talk about racism in a way that reaffirms race as an inherent good, and I've seen that it just doesn't work. Okay, and in what ways does it not work? Uh, so for me, I, I uh, there was a time where I was a part of a an anti-racist uh, uh, student organization that was working with a bunch of other anti-racist organizations in the broader Boston area, mm-hmm. and I was also part of a union at the same time, okay. and uh, a graduate student union. Uh, and what so it was it was a great time to sort of do a comparison of like okay so so what happens when you organize around similar interests uh with the union versus you organize around um common identity or common experiences and the big thing that or the most uh, um when i say that it doesn't work uh part of what was clear for me is that when we embrace um a sort of um, the notion that you can organize around a racial identity or a common experience, what tends to happen is that the folks who come from wealthier backgrounds, folks with more um, so status, folks with more wealth, folks with more power, essentially, that they end up uh, uh, becoming the ones who get to determine uh, what is good or what works for the rest of the folks within that category. So mm-hmm. if we're talking about race, the folks who tend to, de- to define what the appropriate remedies are, even what the problem is, um, that tends to be wealthier, p- more powerful black folks. And it almost never actually does anything to address the material realities of poor and working black folks like myself and like my family. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a union was one, it was seen as a lot more threatening um, to folks with power. Okay. Uh, um, and two, uh, being able to organize around things that um, that actually addressed uh, the um, the lie my, my life <laughs> things like hey we need a living wage 
yeah. hey, uh, our healthcare uh, should not be something that is up for debate every single semester or every single year. Like those are the things that keep me and other folks in general alive. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so it was just a matter of um, with the union, uh, even though we uh, weren't successful in, in, in a lot of the projects that we were putting forth, um, it was just clear to me that like what matters to me most is that folks like myself, like my family, have the necessities to survive. And I didn't see how that would be accomplished through um, uh, what I would call essentialist notions, or organizing around essentialist notions of race. Okay, yeah. And do you think there's water and... And I'm bringing this up so we can move beyond it, but do you think that there's water and that the current regime of anti-racism is being embraced by institutions because it is non-threatening and actually entrenches uh, the powerful or those who already hold power? I firmly believe that institutions are embracing uh, the the sort of white fragilities of the world, the white fragility books or the diversity trainers in particular, but more mm. so just the language of um, um I think they're embracing the, the the sort of diversity trainings and the, some of the anti-racist rhetoric uh, precisely because uh, it it's not threatening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and like I said in my piece, like if I'm an employer, uh, uh, why wouldn't I want some a, a trainer to come in or an educator to come in and tell uh, my employees, tell the workers uh, that the reason why uh, um, you don't have the necessities of your life or the reason why workplace conflict exists is not because of exploitation. It's not because of practices and policies that are authorized by the employers. Instead, it's because white people and black people can't get along. Well, yeah. if I'm a black elite and I'm a white elite, that sounds good to me because mm -hmm. that means I don't have to give up anything. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you imagine going forward with your research or what is your plan of, I guess, attack or critique in order to kind of shake up this uh, regime a little bit? What are some strats that you have? Yeah, so right now um, I'm, I'm working with uh, this uh, caucus that's a, that's a subset of the Democratic, uh, Democratic uh, wow, of DSA, uh, yeah. the Democratic Socialists of America. Sorry, stutter sometimes. <laughs> um, so do I. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> so the group is called Class Unity. And uh, and one of the or the main impetus of, of class unity and the main reason why I, I joined class unity is because it's a group of folks who were a part of DSA um, and folks who are um, anti-essentialists who are trying to figure out how do we answer that very question. Um, and for me, one of the angles um, to 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 go about this is to um, expose uh, the ways in which um, essentialism or essentialist notions of race uh, can be smuggled in through uh, anti-racist or anti-discrimination discourse and uh, and to show uh, that the folks who are benefiting the most from this and the ones who are funding the most, uh, who are putting the most funds into this, uh, are executives. <laughs> and so if it is going to actually serve the interests of poor and working African-Americans and poor and working folks in general, then why would corporate executives be the ones who are funding this the most? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think folks, uh, for a variety of different reasons, uh, um, uh, may not see that connection. And because I think there's a lot of folks who genuinely want to, who are genuinely recognizing that racism is a legitimate problem. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, folks who identify as white and like really want to 
um, be the solution. Uh, my issue, um, and I think my role, is to expose that the solutions that are being sold to them are actually just bullshit. Okay. Why do you think that this particular form of bullshit is so attractive? Or- uh, I think it's attr- one reason why it's attractive is uh, because if you have a lot of um, intellectuals and you have uh, or a lot of educators, you have folks in human resource um, offices, and if you have folks, uh, corporations that are all promoting the view uh, okay. that this logic of anti-racism is um, the way forward, uh, then it's not surprising that it's going to end up being popular. If you look okay. around and you have very little access to disconfirming evidence, um, then it's not surprising that folks are going to um, um, embrace uh, this framework. And another reason why is because uh, for the same reasons uh, that I mentioned before about why corporate executives are um, are promoting this because it's not threatening, I think part of what this brand of anti-racism, this particular brand of anti-racism does is it gives folks an easy way um, to, to, uh, um, to do something, right? All I have to do is read a book. All I have yeah. to do is listen to uh, this uh, uh, trainer speak to me for an hour, and that is far more uh, attractive uh, than doing things like changing the tax structure oh, okay. <laughs> or, or doing right. So I think it's yeah. just it's one. And I, I guess the last part of that is uh, since the Cold War, any type of class analysis has been so stigmatized and rejected um, and framed as uh, quote unquote class reductionism or another form of racism that uh, um, that any attempts to go beyond psychology and go beyond culture to talk about anti-racism is like, there are consequences you get labeled (laughs) in uh, in certain ways. You're uh, you get framed as, as caping, sorry, or you get framed as uh, helping to support white supremacy or what have you. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a really strange, strange uh, occurrence in the uh, um, post cold war period uh, that any attempts to bring a class analysis into conversation with an analysis of race and racism, that somehow that's viewed as a problem. Mm-hmm. So I, I the, think that's why it's attractive. Is is a class analysis, uh, does it have the same pitfalls as essentialism with regards to race? Do you essentialize or how do you be anti-essentialist when you think of in terms of class? Yeah, so uh, one of the ways that folks talk about, or one of the most popular ways, at least in the United States, that people talk about race um, is that it's fundamentally, um, that even racism is fundamentally about who people are, that the problem is uh, who people are and the solution is that is who people are. So, for example, in White Fragility, whenever she's asked, like, what are the next steps, or even by Jimmy Fallon, like, what should we do? First thing she says is people need to recognize that they're white. <laughs> so, it, so it comes back to who they supposedly are. What a yeah. class analysis does is that it doesn't center um, um, some notion about the intrinsic properties of individuals, but instead it focuses on what people do and how do people uh, reproduce themselves and how do people make a living. And so when I say, for example, I'm going to apply a class analysis to to diversity management, to the diversity management industry or regime, part Mm -hmm. of what I mean is thinking about um, or or talking about how diversity trainers are uh, professionals who uh, sell their labor and sell their expertise um, to corporate executives. And so as a result, uh, that diversity trainer who goes in to sort of say, here's why inequality exists and here's what to do about it, 
um, they are not going to promote remedies or they're not going to promote uh, explanations that goes against the interest of their employer. Mm, uh, uh-huh. It's, I guess, another way of framing it is um, they are pretty similar to political appointees, right? Uh, they are, and so if a political appointee, uh, like for example, the Attorney General um, Burr, uh, 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 he's not going. Sorry, Barr. Barr is not going to, for example, um, say that the that the problems that exist in the United States right now can be traced to Donald Trump. <laughs> we know that he's not going to say uh, Donald Trump's practices. They're, they're, um, they're not he's not going to say that because that's his boss. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and he was yeah. appointed for that position. And he and he is essentially an at will employee. The same is true for diversity trainers, these consultants. And so so I think that uh, um, applying a class analysis uh, takes us away from this whole we're trying to figure out who who are the good and bad people and instead saying what are in the interests of, for example, these diversity trainers or what's in the material interest of folks in general and and, Hmm. and how do they reproduce themselves? uh, So whether or not you um, are able to reproduce yourselves uh, by selling your labor or by appropriating value or appropriating um, um, uh, or exploiting those workers, like that is a pretty good way um, mm-hmm. to determine uh, or to explain uh, what folks do. Mm-hmm. The uh, diversity, equity, inclusion regime is pretty advanced now. It's a. Do you know how many billions of dollars they make a year? I don't know the precise number, but it's, I know it's billions. <laughs> it's pretty big, and it's in yeah. major institutions, right? And yes. uh, corporations, and I mean, it captured schools. You think first that was the first kind of uh, uh, corporations, that, uh, oh, firms corporations were the first. Yeah. Okay. What what kind of firms do you? Do you um, so for so from what what I uh, understand so far, uh, diversity trainings became really popular uh, right when um, uh, uh, Reagan uh, was in office and was starting to gut affirmative action. Uh, and was pretty hostile, <laughs> obviously, uh, to okay. affirmative action. And so you had these folks in these uh, previous positions as affirmative action officers. Uh, there was a period where uh, where it was likely that they were going to lose their jobs, <laughs> right? So if affirmative action is gutted, you don't need affirmative action officers. Mm-hmm. And so you had these um, these aff- affirmative action um, compliance officers that were working for various businesses. Uh, 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 their jobs were threatened. And one way to to basically um, preserve uh, their, their the legitimacy of their work is to and to make sure they keep their salary is to reframe their work in a way that serves the interests of their employer. And so, if compliance doesn't serve their interests necessarily, another way to to prove to an employer that you should keep your job is to say that this is going to help with the bottom line. And okay. diversity trainings became popular because they um, supposedly uh, help with boosting productivity. Not because they have any, there was never proof that diversity trainings actually reduce racist practices. And the reason why it became popular was because it was, it was something that was um, appealing to executives uh, uh, and the folks who were doing these trainings were saying that this is appealing because it's going to help to reduce workplace conflict, um, it's going to help to boost productivity, and it's mm. going to be a really effective shield um, from dis- from discrimination lawsuits. So yeah. you can say that, look, we're, we're actively preventing and addressing uh, discrimination because we have these diversity trainings. But again, it's not because they had anything, it's not because there was evidence that these trainings actually reduce racist practices. Do they? No. They don't. Is there, <laughs> uh, is that, there any proof? Do they ever bring up proof? Because they don't, they don't sell themselves. I, 
Yeah, so the only time... They I, would rather uh, call that a, a effect of whiteness than actually... <laughs> I mean, the whole book, White Fragility, is basically in a, a, a book that's trying to justify uh, the reality that diversity trainings are not, are not effective. And so if I can say, for example, that my trainings are, not infe- are ineffective because uh, white people just don't recognize they're white, then that, that sort of says that, oh, the problem isn't the trainings, the problem is the subjects of the trainings, right? <laughs> but the reality is that uh, the studies that I've seen, and I've been looking for some time to find proof that they work, every time I find some type of study uh, um, of the effectiveness of trainings, what it shows is that they're largely ineffective and they can actually activate bias. How do they activate bias or how have you seen? So, for example, if I go in, if I'm a if I'm a trainer and uh, and most of the things that I'm talking about are about how uh, black people have a different culture, black people have different needs, the black people have different um, beliefs um, that need to be um, recognized as distinctly different and and treated as um, uh, uh, distinctly different. If Mm -hmm. I am racist (laughs) uh, uh, and I'm being told that, yes, racial differences um, are are basically inherent, then uh, it's not surprising (laughs) that I can actually reinforce um, Mm -hmm. some racist beliefs. Mm-hmm. And what would you think would be the better counter for that? If we do need race, racial or anti-racist training in a workplace, like what is the proper way f- or the the way that actually has results of diminishing difference between people or apparent difference? Well, I think so. One uh, study, uh, and I can send it to you after um, that, uh, attempted to answer this question. Um, what they showed is uh, um, participation in a union um, can actually be really effective at uh, decreasing. Uh, yeah, because you're organizing around common interests, right? Yeah. Okay. So if what's being centered is that uh, uh, if I if I am successful and you are successful um, in organizing uh, for our common good as workers, um, instead of saying that here are the reasons why uh, I am fundamentally different from you, mm-hmm. um, then it stands to reason um, that it could that it would likely reduce uh, racial bias. So uh, I haven't. That was the one of the first studies that I've seen, at least, that um, that tried to determine whether or not unions could be effective. And what they showed is that, yeah, it can actually be uh, really effective. And mm-hmm. so I, I guess, broadly speaking, I think organizing around common interests, uh, uh, the broader principle of organizing around common interests, recognizing those common interests and organizing around them uh, for some type of collective good, uh, mm-hmm. I believe that that um, is going to be far more effective. Uh, and I guess another uh way to answer that question is to say something that should um, that should not be controversial or should not be uh, surprising but but it depends on where we're talking about <laughs> if we're talking about uh, for example a police department uh, uh, let's say in Minneapolis um, the ways in which uh, um, folks are able to be the perpetrators of racism and basically get away with it are very different than uh, if we're talking about school teachers uh, um, in a suburban district right mm-hmm. and so the idea um, that uh, um, both the the explanations and the remedies for racist practices are the same, regardless of what institution we're talking about, regardless of what time we're talking about, regardless of what area or specific space that we're talking about. The notion that all those things should just be collapsed under this broad category of racism and anti-racism, I think is, uh, I think it's, it's, I find that hard to believe. Mm-hmm. And so instead, I would say it depends on where we're talking about. Um, yeah. And and uh, um, and I should say also, lastly, that if 
we're going to have some type of anti-discrimination trainings. I think it should be centered around, uh, one, what actually is discrimination? <laughs> uh, 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 two, uh, um, what are ways to uh, uh, to basically not be racist in the particular workplace or uh, that I am actually uh, uh, in? So if I'm a teacher, give me some skills or give me some tools of how to uh, uh, not be an asshole to my students, for yeah. example. Yeah. All right. Because I could be ignorant. It may they may very well just be that I am so ignorant because of, of where I grew up and how I've been socialized. But if I'm here and if I genuinely want to know, um, how to not um, perpetrate racism or basically or not how to treat my how to not treat my students um, unfairly, then the best way to go about that is to have um, a training or to have some uh, um, knowledge of specific tangible practices that I can incorporate mm-hmm. um, instead of giving this overview of how all these problems exist uh, because I won't recognize that I'm white. That doesn't give me anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does, but it's not real. It's like this false consciousness thing, or it kind of uploads it. It made me think about the difference between uh, having your your company form a softball team, like as a team sport, versus having them play a game of poker where they're all battling against each other so they can't see how much the house is taking in a way. Uh, mm. And the diversity training is kind of pitting everybody against each other by holding, you know, just playing this game of, you know, uh, cards and stuff like that instead of rather having a common goal. The common goal, you, uh, the, the example you gave would be a union, but there's other ways for teams to figure out how to work together. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of I, I think that, that it's, it's uh, it, at least to me, it's pretty clear um, that the ways, at least the the Robin D'Angelo uh, version of diversity training, what it authorizes is that there are no common interests uh, um, and no basis for a common struggle amongst uh, the workers uh, because of their quote unquote racial identity. And what that obscures, to your point, or what that masks is that the folks who are actually um, authorizing uh, uh, practices and policies in the workplace are the folks with the power, which are the executives. Mm -hmm. And from my experience and from what I've read and from what I've seen and participated in, uh, one of the most common uh, complaints um, from folks who actually do trainings is that the executives are never, never have to be a part of it. <laughs> so the folks with the most power are not mm. even in the room. Yeah. And so it shifts our attention um, from uh, from the practices and policies uh, that are authorized by the employers and also shifts our um, our, our um, attention away from from common interests in the ways that we are all that we as workers are similarly uh, exploited. It mm. shifts that responsibility and shifts that conversation from the executives uh, uh, to the workers um, mm-hmm. and the problems that exist amongst uh, those workers, mm-hmm. and so it's a really effective way um, to to uh, um, manage dissent. Yeah, but it seems to be the case that that form of exploitation that uh, operates within the corporate or the business world is is kind of it's a different field when we're talking about education, or is it? True. Well, it's it's different in the sense that. Um, I was talking with uh, um, uh, a brilliant scholar uh, a few days ago about the fact that um, one of the uh, issues that is coming to the forefront in during this pandemic as we um, get pushed back um, into our classes in, in a few weeks is that um, faculty um, and teachers 
are workers. <laughs> they they sell their labor, and yet, especially in the academy, um, uh, for for at least for tenure track folks, uh, and or folks who have tenure, they don't see themselves as workers. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they don't see themselves as as laborers. And so uh, I think that that is one distinct difference that in the in the uh, academy, from what I've seen and from what I've read, uh, um, even the notion of talking about uh, a union for graduate students is viewed as illegitimate because we are not technically workers. Okay. Uh, we are, uh, we are. Fr- I mean, if you ask Boston College, we are framed as uh, religious instructors as a way to justify. So we're not, we're not workers, even though we get paid to teach and to conduct research. They said that we were religious instructors because this is a religious institution. If I remember correctly, that was one of the um, the claims made. And so I think that uh, there are more ideological barriers to recognizing um, common class interests okay. um, and. And even discussing exploitation uh, in in educational institutions, from what I've seen, more so than there are in, um, for example, when I work as a waiter. <laughs> like I worked, I used to work part time before COVID as a waiter, and there was no if ands or buts about it. <laughs> there was no there was no uh, um, misrecognition uh, of where our paychecks come from, how we're screwed over by our bosses. And um, and how managers help to to basically uh, keep us in line uh, and to root the folks out who are trying to, you know, cause some trouble, which for the bosses, it means that um, you are going to negatively impact their ability to maximize profit. Like those dynamics are pretty clear when you're working at at a grocery store, when you're working um, at a um, uh, um, at a corporation. um, And uh, and I would say also for the staff at schools. But when it comes to educators and even um, some uh, grad students. For whatever reason, uh, uh, we do not have um, that that recognition of those class distinctions. Okay. It seems to be the case that there's more going on within education and the advancement of diversity than just the uh, a cover for, um, you know, a cover for the powers that be and that this kind of is non-threatening for them. But it seems to be the case that a lot of students are demanding this. It seems like I have some evidence that certain uh, sectors of academia are kind of planning this revolutionary tendency in order to perhaps gain more power or be able to control speech in that sense. Is that operating too? Have you looked at that? Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. So for my master's thesis, uh, what I did was I conducted interviews, not with diversity managers, but um, a broad uh, um, sample of administrators who work with students, essentially. So whether it be student okay. affairs folks or yeah. academic affairs folks. And one of my findings uh, was that the those administrators are the ones who, when a student comes in and complains about like a clear-cut case of discrimination, um, that student doesn't say, I want diversity trainings, but they say, here's the problem. And I've been told that if I have problems, I'm supposed to go speak to an administrator. The administrator will say uh, um, that the way to address this problem is to push for, for diversity trainings or for you to be a diversity trainer yourself. So they'll tell students to do the same work as diversity trainers. Okay. Um, they'll say, come up with a proposal. They'll say, come up with um, um, some uh, educational materials that you could send to the president. And when you do that, make sure you don't ask for things that the president's going to say no to. So you can't ask for things that cost that much money. Um, instead, you should ask for things that um, that we can do in-house, like a diversity training or affinity groups or what have you. So what I what that tells me is that one of the uh, main constituencies 
that are uh, promoting the view that if if you are a victim of racism as a student, the way to go about it is to um, um, ask for more speech codes or to ask for more diversity trainings. What I'm finding is that it's the administrators whose responsibility is to develop student leadership, that they are the main, that w- one of the main constituencies who are promoting that. And why would they promote that? Because what that tends to sh- uh, uh, show is one, uh, um, or it, what it tends to provide for them is uh, more access to power. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then they'll be the ones who are on these committees. They'll be the ones who are on these uh, 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 bias response teams. And they'll, and, uh, uh, and, and secondly, if my job can be threatened uh, because of students protesting or students demanding things that makes the president upset, um, whether it be uh, just like even a protest that can negatively impact the reputation of the school, if I do a really good job at preventing that, then that's good for me. But if the students protest and demand those things that are that could actually be threatening uh, to the higher ups, then my ass is on the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's the material interest or, or that's the uh, um, that's their stake in promoting um, this particular brand of anti-racism. And I guess to I'll add one last point to that is uh, uh, the expansion of this sort of student leadership or student affairs um, uh, mm-hmm. profession that occurred after um, the the the, um, this, the range of anti-war and anti-racism and civil rights protests that were happening in the 60s, where it was the student affairs folks who were, um, uh, their profession was a lot smaller at the time. Uh, and so when students were protesting, the president and the other executives were looking to the student affairs folks to play the middleman. Um, they were basically asking them to say, uh, uh, for knowledge about what the students were doing, mm-hmm. um, to sort of uh, negotiate in between them, and um, and since then, we've seen the student affairs uh, profession expand, and as a result, uh, their ability um, or their their role as managers of potential and actual student dissent um, has expanded. And so, it makes perfect sense that uh, as they have more of a role in um, guiding or determining what students do, um, and using things like the student codes of conduct as the um, as a way to sort of say, if you don't do this, then here are the consequences. Their ability to sort of determine how students respond to injustices on campus, um, as that has gone up, uh, the calls for diversity trainings and speech codes have gone up. Oh, okay. All right. So it's a self-reinforcing loop, in a way. Yes. And there are charts that I've seen where it just kind of shows this dramatic increase in administration. And you've given some reasons for it, but also I've seen, uh, you know, some, um, you know, parsings of that data that says that the influx of really cheap loans, just kind of the administration is the, the ones who kind of gobbled that up. And now you have like education is kind of the secondary thing that colleges even promote now. They don't even really promote that this is a place where you go and you learn. This is a place where you go and you live. This is about creating mm-hmm. a home here. Um, mm-hmm. This is about like, you know, we're going to make you feel like a king for or a queen for like four years. Like this is your experience, right? Mm-hmm. Which kind of yeah. Oops, it, it shifts the it, well, it shifts the, the product of, of education to something else. Yeah. So I would say um, um, the 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 research on the expansion of, of administration and how this um, is tied to 
um, a huge decline in um, state or public support, public financial support for, for colleges in general, which then led schools to have to rely more and more on private um, 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 sources of revenue. Uh, so things like donations um, and also obviously tuition um, mm-hmm. that absolutely. Uh, um, how do I say this? That plays a role in shaping um, or motivating uh, uh, schools um, to basically reframe um, colleges and universities as these, uh, for lack of a better word, I mean, especially the elites, they're basically, um, yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, like the best, the best indicator of this uh, uh, was my advisor told me one day uh, that made me laugh hysterically, but it also is really smart, was that like, if college, if the main focus of colleges and universities or the main priority of colleges and universities was still education, um, then why is it that bookstores uh, rarely sell books anymore? If you go to a bookstore, what they mainly sell is par- um, is uh, the, the the clothes with the brand on it mm-hmm. and uh, um, and other um, and uh, what's it like um, like electronics mm-hmm. and yeah. and stuff like that. It's yeah, it, bookstores aren't really like bookstores that. anymore, and yeah. so that's a pretty good indication of the shift. Uh, I, I would also say that the history of colleges, universities, as far as what I know. Um, it has never really been primarily or solely about education. It's mainly been um, uh, these these institutions have 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 largely existed, from my understanding of the history, um, um, as a, um, a gateway for social mobility for professionals and the children of elites. Yeah. And so it's education um, in the sense that it's education for professionals and and elites, but not sort of like education for the sake of education. Yeah. Um, but to your point, um, as far as the expansion of, of the administration, um, there's this great book called The Fall of the Faculty that I would recommend to everyone. Okay. Um, I can't remember which year it came out, but one of the uh, one of the uh, explanations that they offer that I think is pretty persuasive is that uh, if as you have more and more administrators um, who are appointed by uh, vice presidents or, or, or associate vice presidents, what have you, um, they need to create some type of structure in place that justifies their existence. And so how do you do that? You say, I need to have more assistants. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. your job becomes managing those assistants. And so it, it's, it's, it almost resembles a pyramid scheme, to be honest. Well, yeah. uh, where <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that's what it is, basically, right? Yeah. And, and uh, to your point with the um, uh, comparison of the expansion of administration versus faculty, mm-hmm. uh, my read on the, the ratio or sorry, the the um, the ratio of administrators to students versus faculty to students. What from what I've seen, um, the, the amount of, of faculty uh, who full time faculty are hired has largely been constant. Um, but the amount of the ratio of administrators to students has grown uh, a ton over the last uh, 40 or so years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I do think that part of the reason has to do with the fact that like if you need to justify your existence as a as a manager, um, one of the ways that you do that is you hire more people to manage. Yeah. Wow. It, it it seems like it's headed towards a bubble. It seems like it can't sustain itself. Do you think that that's uh, what's how is it going to play out going forward? Is it sustainable? Is what is going on sustainable? I would say that COVID-19 
uh, is probably going to accelerate uh, the uh, time period over which the uh, that bubble bursts. Uh, but I think that primarily what's going to happen is uh, so I don't I don't think it's sustainable. One, I should say that. And uh, and I think one of the reasons why it's not sustainable uh, is because of just the, the huge expansion in student debt. Uh, so uh, mm. I, I believe it's it's been past a trillion dollars in this country um, as far as uh, how much debt the students owe. Uh, I think the more and more that um, students go into debt and aren't able to um, to uh, help sustain uh, colleges and universities across the country while public dollars keeps going down, even in, during this pandemic, at least in New York State, I think that what's going to happen is that um, you're going to have less and less students deciding to go to these really expensive um, um, institutions, um, except for the really expensive, really elite ones that who's like the Harvards and the and the, yeah. um, the Ivy yeah. Leagues, for example. Yeah. I think that they'll be um, um, fine for, for some time. But I think... Uh, most of higher ed, uh, uh, I think that we should all be worried. <laughs> and I think that this upcoming semester, when fo- uh, millions of folks have been unemployed or underemployed, uh, and for, for what I can tell, um, and from every indication I could see, uh, the, the um, $600 uh, checks a week for unemployment, that that's, that's probably not going to be re-upped uh, in the next week at least. Can you imagine all those students, those hundreds of thousands of students um, of folks who have been unemployed or underemployed when they go back to campus and they get that first or that second tuition bill and they can't pay for it? (laughs) And then their classes, a lot of them are online. Uh, uh, And then you have all the anger and frustration for for um, for racism, uh, but also for exploitation and inequality in general. When they all come back to campus and start saying, you know what, why am I paying so much uh, for a college campus? Um, uh, uh, then it's going to be I think it's going to cause a lot of schools um, to to uh, have to make some some tough decisions, uh, if not close. And if there isn't a massive um, expansion in public uh, funding for for higher education, um, I'm really terrified then of what's going to happen when that first or second tuition bill hits yeah. in that coming year. Do you think that it would have been or do you think that it's possible for an administration to reform itself? Like in your studying of how diversity is being used to, you know, forward or cover for the exploitation of workers or the way that it's being used to facilitate the expansion of this kind of weird bureaucratic class. uh, Was there is there any way for it to not just kind of just keep on growing until it collapses? Is there a way to, to to pull back, pull it back from the trajectory. So, um, so one thing I will add then, um, so not just a cover for exploitation, but it's also diversity trainings, for example, and all of this symbolic gestures of like these racial justice initiatives. What they're also covered for is for legit discrimination that occurs on their campus. Uh, because when complaints occur, like I said previously, when the students um, come to administrators, come to faculty and say that this discrimination occurred, um, the yeah. folks who are handling it are usually administrators who are paid by the institution, and it's in their interest uh, to make sure that you're not going to describe your problems or try to address your problems in a way that's threatening to the institution. And so, therefore, it's uh, 
they're not going to promote the view uh, that discrimination actually is a problem because it opens up the school for liability. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're going to be inviting a lawsuit. You're going to be inviting public press. And I think that's one of the reasons why we actually people prefer to use the, the language of microaggressions. You can't be sued for microaggression. You can't yeah. be sued for discrimination. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so so uh, uh, so putting that um, piece aside uh, to answer your question of of um, can administrators basically self-regulate in a way that will address the problem. Uh, every, I see no reason to believe um, that any group of professionals and managers um, will uh, um, delegitimize their existence. <laughs> I, I, I firmly believe that uh, that. People tend to not want to come up with reasons why they should not be paid for a living. Uh, and so uh, one mechanism, or I think there's two uh, sort of changes um, that are probably a little bit more liberal, um, but something that is tangible in the short term uh, that could sort of change the tra trajectory. Well, three. One is student protests and demonstrations with faculty and with staff, I, I think, Students, faculty, and staff organizing around common interests and doing things like saying, like, in general, administrators should not be controlling what is said and did in the classroom, yeah. right? Or yeah. controlling how our hiring and promotional practices, right? Yeah. Like, I think, and, and on top of that, uh, um, doing things like, hey, maybe there should be um, some type of uh, um, changes to the board of trustees, which no one ever talks about. But like, may, why is it that a group of elites of rich corporate executives get to determine um, policies and procedures on our campus? Why is it that we don't have something that actually looks like shared governance, where there are faculty and students who are determining uh, or are collectively determining um, uh, uh, um, uh, how things operate on the college campus? And I think that Changes will occur when students, faculty, and staff organize around that. That I think what um, that necessary uh, change that needs to occur. Because mm -hmm. uh, again, in these discussions, the board of trustees are never discussed usually, and that's a that's a that's a problem. At least mm -hmm. in discussions that I'm hearing, for example, about anti-racism, right? Yeah. Um, and so the second change is, I think, just like in preschools. And uh, um, and other uh, institutions that serve uh, children or serve other people, like one of the ways that you get the professionals and the managers and the executives to basically um, treat folks within that institution better is you have some type of external accountability, right? So, like my partner works at a um, uh, uh, my girlfriend works at a daycare, and so they have uh, folks who will um, folks in the state. Who will come in and inspect, and yeah. and make sure that the that the um, school is is abiding by the um uh, by state and, and legal or, or state and local uh, policies, uh, laws and procedures. And so the threat of some type of uh, regulators coming in uh, without giving a heads up that keeps them, uh, yeah, that motivates does. them to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, like keeping uh, an appropriate ratio of students to to to, um, to teachers, yeah. for example. In higher ed, uh, that's not really how accreditation works, <laughs> right? Uh, accreditation is not. Re uh, we're going to have um, um, some inspectors come in um, to make sure uh, uh, that you're abiding by the policies and procedures. They don't come in to to make sure. Uh, that uh, um, that complaints about discrimination, harassment, are handled appropriately. Uh, I would argue that it's not. It's not. Real, there's no real, real teeth behind it at all. Um, and so I think that another mechanism is uh, accreditation needs to 
be a lot more responsive to the needs and the interests and demands of faculty and students and and less reliant on these self studies <laughs> where where yeah. schools get to say here's how we are abiding <laughs> with yeah. your your uh, uh, your uh, um, with state and local policy and the last source I think is um, anti-discrimination in general uh, legislation or equal opportunity legislation um, has largely uh, um, how do we say it? The enforcement of anti-discrimination or equal opportunity laws um, has been weak since 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 the inception. And so I think if there's going to be some type of uh, motivation or pressure for administrations to change, I think it's going to have to uh, come from accreditation. It's going to have to come from um, from the state that says that, like, here are the actual um, um uh, ways that you could be compliant with uh, these policies and procedures, and here's the ways you should be handling complaints. And these ways or these strategies that we promote um, are going to demonstrably serve the interests of the victims of racism and the victims of exploitation. And that's not the case right now. What is the case right now? In your right now, uh, it's large, largely left up to, left up to schools. Um, yeah. to to uh, uh, um, to signal their compliance, usually yeah. symbolic, so like the websites or having some type of, t- some type of task force or committees, um, but they get to handle everything internally, essentially. And the other mechanism is for um, students or for faculty or workers um, to, to uh, um, file a complaint and to possibly sue the institution, uh, yeah. but obviously due to the asymmetry of power and resources, the folks who tend to win <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. um, those suits uh, are the school yeah yeah the what you've just told me over the last uh, i guess 52 minutes is uh, a complete analysis of one of my ongoing projects about a school that i attended in uh, olympia washington called evergreen state college and in 2017 there was a huge uh, like intersectional meltdown the the campus was taken over there's protests there was hostage taking there's community patrols with bats it was just this crazy thing the the students uh, live streamed it it was a big like riotous uh, kind of uprising or outburst it's very similar to kind of what happened after covid uh, cooped us up mm. for a while and then everybody mm. blew up about this uh, you know mm-hmm. persistent real re- uh, issue of racism but racism was just kind of in a certain analysis just a way for people to get their yayas out and on a certain mm. level and, and the perpetual um protests and the the you know the riots and and like a lot of the energy that's being released but the the fallout of the protests at the evergreen state college were basically the only thing that actually changed was that the the administration got more power like yeah. the students were appeased they got more you know equity space and more mm-hmm. officers you know but mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they were allowed to tool around with the uh, student code of conduct but what mm-hmm. happened was that the the president of the college just hired more VPs, put in yep. more structures, and and diminished the ability, uh, even for the faculty to communicate with each other. He even stripped mm-hmm. them of their ability to communicate with each other. And ultimately, this guy just gained more power under the mm-hmm. cover of you know justice and uh, you know a <laughs> bright racial future. And just seeing you describe those mechanics operating completely across the country, but in higher ed in general is really played out in the experiment that was the Evergreen State College. Yeah, so I, I got a chance to look a little bit at what was taking place at Evergreen. And um, and I should start by then saying um, that uh, that somebody who I think is was, was a brilliant um, thinker and somebody who encouraged me to be a little bit less cynical and focus a little bit more on um, – mm-hmm. 
on solutions and, and working towards a common good with a collective uh, is Michael Brooks. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Michael Brooks or the Michael Brooks show. Um, so I just want to say quickly uh, that hmm. uh, one rest in peace and I'm still torn up about it. And, uh, and the reason why I bring that up is um, to sort of provide a preface for why I'm giving the answer that I'm giving. So I think that one of the ways um, to think about what took place from what I saw at Evergreen is to recognize that like there are two truths that seem to be in conflict with each other, but they're actually not. So the first truth is that the students who were um, protesting and complaining about racism uh, could very well and probably likely uh, would uh, be complaining about legitimate cases of racism that took place on that campus, but maybe not on that campus, right? Like the, from what I think, it's, it's, I find it hard to believe uh, that folks will get so upset because of, of, of a problem that doesn't exist. But where the, the other, uh, uh, um, what's the word? Um, where the other piece of that puzzle um, that needs to be um, um, recognized with the empathy for like they're, they're complaining for, for about legitimate problems, even if you disagree with the remedies, is mm-hmm. that the uh, administrators... Um, will use those opportunities uh, to expand their power and to shift the direction, shift the attention, shift the anger to individual faculty because it is in their interest to do so. Hmm. It protects the institution. <laughs> it yeah. basically makes whoever makes particular individuals be the the sort of fall guys or what have you. And yeah. so, uh, um, and if you have administrators, at least the ones from like the ones I've seen in the past and the ones who I've studied, if they're saying, yeah, the faculty are the problem, the faculty are the problem. It's not the institution. It's not, and the way that you address it is like, you give me more power. They don't say it like that, but they say it like, yeah. the way you address it is you do what other schools have done. You do these things like have more, um, like uh, um, like call for uh, another vice president or yeah. demand uh, that administrators will have control over the faculty hiring um, and promotional yeah. process. If the folks who are saying, I'm your ally, I'm your friend, if they are telling the students, here's the way to go about it, and if what they're seeing at other institutions, that that's how students are going about it because the administrators are doing the same thing there, then it actually makes perfect sense that there's going to be a lot of conflict between the students and the faculty while the administrators get to grab more power and yeah. get off the hook. And so yeah. I would say the way to go, the way to handle um, that situation or the way to think about that situation is to say that, okay, two things could be true. Um, there could be professors who are assholes. <laughs> there could be true that there are professors who are racist. Um, but it is also true that the remedies that um, that are being put forth um, actually do not address that problem. <laughs> what it actually does is it creates more problems whereby administrators um, have more power and more authority over how things um, operate on that campus. And how do we know that in the future they won't use those same speech codes or those same um, anti-bias policies hmm. to police the protesters yeah <laughs> and i know that that's what would happen because that's what happened to me <laughs> they would use really? the language of justice and by an anti-bias or whatever to say that if you are protesting that you are disrupting the educational mandate of the institution yeah. you are making people feel bad you are uh um, um disrespecting folks and that is not inclusive and therefore you deserve some type of reprimand that's what's that's what happens and I have no reason to believe uh, uh, that administrators, that when they have more and more power, that they won't just use it against any dissent that poses a threat to the institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so, what I would say to the folks if I was with them there. Yeah. 
How do you think that? How do you conceive of us um, as a nation um, going forward with uh, the racial dialogue and uh, finding amelioration and uh, like a, a common goal, uh, common humanity? What do you think we should be focusing on, or what do you wish we were talking about? <laughs> so I, I would be far. I would I would sleep better at night if um, if folks. One began with the premise um, that uh, um, that we should all be anti essentialists <laughs> that we should reject any notion that what matters is fun- that uh, um, that politics begins and ends at who people are instead of what people do. Okay. Right. So that would be first. Um, the second uh, piece of that is I would sleep better at night if folks promoted solutions that were actually effective at addressing the needs and the interests of poor and working folks uh, uh, um, in this country, right? So, like for example, um, the the hostility uh, to the Bernie Sanders campaign um, from folks who uh, um, who present themselves as woke present themselves as the champions for black folks. The idea that something like Medicare for all would not demonstrably improve improve the lives of African-Americans across the country and folks in general. The idea that that's somehow racist or somehow supporting white supremacy is foolishness. It is absolute foolishness. And instead, somehow the solution is diversity trainings. Uh, If I asked randomly 100 black and brown folks (laughs) who are poor and working, which would you rather, a training or or, 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 uh, 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 Medicare for all, I can tell you, I, I'm pretty sure that they would say that my immediate need would be met with healthcare or with a jobs program. And so, I th- so all of that is to say that if we're going to be talking about solutions for um, whether it be discrimination or inequality in general, we should actually talk about the solutions that work and reject uh, unapologi- unapologetically reject solutions that will not work. Okay. And uh, and actually, a step further would be is to figure out why are the solutions that are ineffective, why are they why are they being promoted by corporations, professionals, and managers? And the reason why is because it's not threatening to their interests. Mm-hmm. It's not threatening to their pocketbooks, okay. right? Yeah. Um, so having that recognition, um, I think, is a is a is an important step. The, uh, a third step is um, I cannot imagine how the problems of discrimination or exploitation would actually be addressed um, in a in a period where unions. Are, have been decimated so much. One of the things I learned at, at Boston College when I was a graduate student, um, or I still am, but when I was doing the work with the union and with the anti-racist group, one of the reasons why we started working together is because the union can actually support folks who are making claims or, or, or filing grievances about practices like discrimination or unjust practices like administrators using speech codes to suppress dissent. Why? Because those unions are, are made up of folks who are elected and paid for by us and not by the executives. And uh-huh. so who would I rather have? Would I have an advocate um, who uh, who is elected uh, by me, is accountable by me, um, is paid for with some of my uh, some of the money that I provide th- to them? Would I want them to be my advocates for the collective or would I want somebody who is an administrator who is paid for by the institution to protect the, the needs of the institution and they're an at-will employee? Hmm. I guess I'm going to go with the person who I get to choose wow. <laughs> and the person who serves my <laughs> interests. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so unions, I think that uh, uh, the more that folks, the more that we recognize just how powerful 
unions can actually be for protecting our interests as students and as faculty, I think the better we would be um, uh, uh, as far as pushing back at the encroachment of power uh, and the encroachment of their own interests of the administrators and the board of trustees. Um, I think that would be if there was one thing that like if I could flip a switch and like this happened tomorrow, it would be that every single student, uh, faculty, every working person uh, in the country is able to be a part of the union. OK. That how do you I guess this is a perpetual um, problem for somebody who's advancing something that goes against the interests of those who are in power. But how do you get that message out if this diversity uh, anti-racist stuff is not e- it's not even a bone that are being thrown the people who want actual you know justice or actual mm-hmm. change in the life it's 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 like kind of a rubber bone for them to chew on but it's, it doesn't even have any nutrients um no nutrients yep <laughs> how how do you reimplement uh i guess one term I, I'm not a Marxist, but one term is kind of class consciousness. Mm-hmm. How, how do you reify that conversation and, and uh, kind of center, recenter the conversation on material needs and, and what you call what people do, not what they are? Yeah, um, so that's a good question. So one of the things that I've learned um, just in a little bit of time that I have um, been doing some of this work and have been learning a, a ton from class unity is that uh, um, is that conversations uh, um, and and attempts to sort of build solidarity and and build a sense of power um, amongst workers um, that that centers on common interests, I think is just an incredibly effective um, tool uh, that for folks who may get too cynical or have you, we may think that that's just not going to work. But like it actually is effective, Hmm. um, at least from what I've seen. Uh, um, And and uh, and I firmly believe um, that folks are pragmatic. (laughs) And so if I guess one of the barriers then is uh, um, the belief that somehow attempts to um, recognize and organize around common material interests is somehow um, supporting racism or supporting white supremacy. Um, I think that that is one of those ideological barriers that we have to push back against. And one of the ways to push back against is to show one how the shit that these people are selling is just ineffective. Like to show that like they're literally lying. <laughs> like oh, they may believe. Actually, I shouldn't say the lying. They may believe that these trainings or what have you are in, are, are effective or, or what have you. But to show that the evidence is clear that it's not effective Mm -hmm. and to then provide folks with an alternative to say that a lot of the things that we take for granted in the workplace uh, uh, were not uh, um, given to us by uh, uh, by executives who just thought I just want to treat my workers nice today, <laughs> right? It, it was a response to pressure um, from organized workers, uh, and so the idea then that somehow uh, um, hmm. that attempts to um, to figure out what those common interests are and attempts to build institutions um, that that unapologetically serve the interests of, of poor and working folks, the idea that that's somehow caping or sorry, that somehow that's supporting or uplifting white supremacy. I think that if you articulate uh, that contradiction to folks who, who genuinely mean well, I think mm-hmm. like they would tend to agree <laughs> that like, oh, shit, that is bullshit. <laughs> um, <laughs> and at the end of the day, uh, the reality is that the more that we organize around common interests and the more that we demonstrate the, the um, how uh, this sort of race reductionist uh, beliefs of this, these sort of idealistic psycho bullshit, the more that we demonstrate that that actually does not 
help to change the distribution of power and resources, um, and instead to show how alternatives like unions could be that. Um, I think the more that folks will um, um, start start to make those decisions uh, uh, to uh, uh, shift their thinking and to shift their practices. Um, and I, 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 with the group Class Unity that I'm a part of now, as somebody who's sort of new to the um, um, Marxist world, who has largely been steeped in critical race theory for some time, uh, so I may not articulate it in the right way, but I genuinely believe mm. uh, um, that what folks are trying to do in class unity and what folks are trying to do in other in unions across the country and even in, in DSA more broadly, I generally think that we're trying to work to figure out the answer to that question. And I think that the election of, um, or sorry, the, the the candidacy, the campaign of, of Bernie Sanders, where somebody who identifies as a democratic socialist, the idea that he even had a shot mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, is huge. Uh, it's a huge, huge shift uh, um, in the in the I hate this term, the Overton window, uh, yeah. in, um, in the last fifty years. And so I have I get my hope uh, from uh, from the belief. That the more we recognize common interests, the more that we demonstrate and build power um, mm-hmm. to serve the interests of poor working folks and to be unapologetic about it, I think the better off we'll be. Mm-hmm. Great. That sounds hopeful. Uh, there's a lot of work to do, though. There's a lot of work. To do. <laughs> yeah. what, what are your um, are you publishing regularly? Uh, do you have uh, do you have a resource that people can find your work and do you have something planned for the future? So uh, right now I'm working on my book. Uh, so the manuscript, uh, so that my dissertation is going to end up being um, a, a book manuscript on diversity management that I mentioned earlier. And so that is taking up a lot of my time uh, mm-hmm. for the next year. Uh, but um, I would say the Class Unity, um, if you type in Class Unity DSA in Google, um, it should be the, one of the first things or uh, the first thing that shows up where I'll be writing and, and publishing stuff on there. And also my Twitter uh, uh, I believe the the tag is no more racecraft. Um, so I, whenever I write something, I'll be posted on there as well. <laughs> Excellent, Cedric. Thanks so much for your time. You have given me, uh, you've given like my work. Uh, a, you've imported a whole bunch of information that's very useful on a number of different conversations that I've been having uh, to to kind of analyze it from a completely different point of view than I've been focusing on. I think it's very useful uh, to to think about it in terms of material. You know, who 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 does who. You know, I've been looking at what the critical race theory anti-fragility does psychologically, but you're mm-hmm. showing like who it serves, like yes. behind the scenes, like the green yes. kind of take on it, which I don't think a lot of people, I think it's it's really beneficial for people to, to kind of think about it on that level. Well, thank you. Thank you. I And I should say that uh, also, thank you for having me on. Uh, um, as as every student and, and faculty and even folks like yourself should know that like this is a work in progress. <laughs> and so part of um, this work, this dialogue is trying to work through some of these ideas um, on top of actually putting it in practice. And so giving me the chance to be able to work this out and talk about it with you um, and to clarify some of the things like was really helpful. So I really appreciate it. Excellent. Hopefully we can... Uh check back in when you're a little bit further down the uh, road and hopefully we'll see what happens with higher education come, <laughs> come fall I'll, I'll come back anytime you want uh, especially in the next semester when things start to get a little rough if you want to yeah. talk about it some more I'm, I'm, I'm your man I think that would be great I think that would be great um, well all you right. have a good afternoon I'll talk to you later alright take care alright ciao
Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.